So I was going downstairs. This would be like, I don't know, nine in the morning or so. And then I met with two guys that are going upstairs. It's 2009, and Luis Corones, a researcher working for Panda, a Spanish cybersecurity company, is at a high point in his career. Just a few weeks earlier, he took to the stage at a joint press conference with the Spanish police and revealed to the public a successful operation that put an end to a huge botnet known as Mariposa and placed its operators behind bars. Following the triumphant presentation, Luis became somewhat of a public figure in Spain, so he wasn't that surprised when the two young men who were walking up the stairs in his office building recognized him. And then they say, hey, wait a moment. Uh, are you Luis Corrans? And I said, yes, yes, I am. And then uh, they introduce themselves and they tell me their names. No clue. I didn't recognize those names. Uh, first time I hear these names, first time I see those faces, I didn't know anything, right? And then I said, okay, uh, nice meeting you. And then uh, they said, oh, wait, uh, I am Net Cairo and this is Ostiator. Net Cairo and Ostiator, the two botnet operators he just recently helped the Spanish police arrest. Except they weren't behind bars. They were in the stairwell of his office building, standing right next to him, alone. Probably my face went white at that moment. I was like, oh my, oh my God, I'm dead. Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. Cybersecurity has a smart cow problem. No, I'm not talking about AI-equipped bovine Uber hackers. Although, to be honest, with AI improving as rapidly as it does, I wouldn't rule out such a possibility in the future. No, this is a term derived from the expression, it only takes one smart cow to open the latch of a gate, and then all the other cows follow. Applied to cybersecurity, it means that it only takes a handful of sophisticated and knowledgeable individuals that can discover vulnerabilities, create the tools to exploit them, and then disseminate these tools to low-skill script kiddies to give law enforcement organizations all around the world a real headache. The smart cow of our story is Matias Skorniak a Slovenian programmer who in 2007 launched Darkcode, a forum and black marketplace that quickly became, in the words of the US Justice Department, quote, the most sophisticated English-speaking forum for criminal computer hackers in the world. It was Matias' actions that started the chain of events that led to Luis Coron's fateful meeting in his office stairwell some two years later. In September 2008, Matthias started advertising on Darkcode, a new creation of his, an extremely sophisticated software he named ButterflyBot, or BFBot for short. As often happens, 
the 21-years-old Slovenian, advertised his software as a legitimate product that allowed IT admins to, quote, fully stress the performance and stability of their network applications. But everyone in Darkode knew BFBot's real purpose, to create and control an army of bots, zombified computers used for all sorts of cybercrimes, from launching DDoS attacks to sending email spam. In no time, BFBot became a bestseller. Matthias, using the handle Lisserdo, sold copies of the malware to dozens of Darkode's members for prices ranging from $500 to $2,000. One of his clients was a Spanish hacker named Net Cairo, who led a cybercrime gang called Dias de Pesadilla, Nightmare Days. Matthias and NetCairo worked closely together on customizing BFBot according to NetCairo's needs. Apparently, they did a great job, because when the Nightmare Days group launched their botnet in December of 2008, it quickly became a huge success. Propagating via MSN Messenger, USB disk on key devices, and contaminated downloads in peer-to-peer -peer networks, Mariposa, Spanish for butterfly, infected roughly half of Fortune 100 companies and at least 40 major banks. BFBot's modular design allowed NetCairo and his cronies to utilize their malware for a variety of goals. Stealing banking credentials and credit card information, install malicious toolbars on users' browsers, and execute DDoS extortion attacks. Chris Davis is a Canadian security consultant who rose to prominence in the early 2000s after he helped authorities to capture a hacker who broke into e-commerce websites and stole credit card information. In 2008, Chris founded Defense Intelligence, a security company specializing in advanced malware protection. Wishing to make a name for his new company, Chris went hunting for a fresh malware to investigate and they knew exactly where to find one. There are several methods for controlling a botnet, a popular one being via a command and control server or servers with which the infected PCs communicate to receive instructions and upgrades. However, such a centralized control scheme also poses a risk for the botnet operators. If the command and control server is compromised, the whole bot network goes down with it. To counter this threat, bot operators often utilize dynamic DNS. DNS, short for Domain Name System, is the system that associates domain names with particular IP addresses. For example, when you're entering malicious.life in your browser's address bar and press enter, a request is sent to a DNS server, which replies with the IP address of the server that actually hosts our website allowing the browser to communicate with it. If the IP address of a server changes, its admin would need to update the DNS system with the new address. This is usually done manually, but if the IP address changes relatively frequently, in some scenarios it could even change on a daily basis, updating the address manually can become impractical. This is where dynamic DNS comes into play. It enables the network to detect IP changes as they happen and automatically update the DNS information in real time. 
As it happens, botnet operators often need to change the IP addresses of their command and control servers quite frequently in order to avoid detection by law enforcement and nosy security researchers, which makes dynamic DNS an important part of their botnet's infrastructure. While the domain name that the individual bots in a network need to ping for instructions and such remains constant, for example, scam.bot.net, behind the scenes, the operator can switch the command and control server's hosting service and change the IP address as often as needed. Chris Davis, who knew all that, approached a few personal acquaintances of his that owned and operated dynamic DNS hosting services and asked them for a list of their most queried domains. His experience told him that more often than not, such heavily queried domains are usually part of a botnet. To differentiate between legitimate domains and ones that point to a command and control server, Davis examined the frequency with which the domain was queried. Bots tend to ping their command and control servers in regular intervals, as opposed to natural human activity, which tends to be more chaotic and irregular. In short notice, Davis came upon a domain which fit his criteria, butterfly.bigmoney.biz, which received an unusually high number of queries at regular intervals of three minutes. Davis described his next actions in a paper later published by Defense Intelligence. Quote, Using our contacts at the dynamic DNS providers, we changed the resolve IP of one of the command and control domains to a sinkhole system we had established. Then, instead of bot-compromised systems actively talking with the botmaster, they would try to talk with us. The difference would be that we would only listen, not give orders. This allowed us to see just who was communicating with this domain, which in turn told us who was part of the botnet. We expected to see random individual users on perhaps a few dozen home machines. What we discovered was that the botnet was already widespread across hundreds of systems and was growing daily. The machines we saw were not just public users, but major industries, including dozens of Fortune 100 companies. Butterfly.bigmoney.biz turned out to be the domain name for one of Mariposa's command and control servers, and sinkholing it allowed defense intelligence analysts to examine the botnet closely. Although other security vendors already reported about Mariposa, their research showed that the botnet was much larger than anyone had suspected. It consisted of some 12.7 million compromised personal, corporate and government systems in more than 190 countries, making it one of the largest botnets ever uncovered. Davis published his company's findings in a formal press release, which he was certain Mariposa's shady operators would find interesting as well. Quote, For a long time, we were unsure of the botmaster's reaction to our efforts. Had they even read any of the stories? Were they scared of us? Did they care? In late November, we got our first nod from the Mariposa controllers, as the new CNC domains had begun to spring up in our honor. 
These domains included TLD variants appending the phrase Defintel sucks. I couldn't help but feel flattered, in a way, knowing we were good enough to be hated. End quote. They're coming for it. Your personal data, your intellectual property, your business. Cyber attackers are working to take what belongs to you and holding you to ransom. Defenders don't fear ransomware. They end it. With CyberReason, defenders detect and stop ransomware that even others miss every time. This is not just a product. It's a mission. CyberReason gives you the upper hand against ransomware and all other cyber attacks. At CyberReason, we don't fear ransomware. We end it. Learn more at cyberreason.com slash ransom. The next step would be to take over the botnet and dismantle it, but such an operation would be too big for his fledgling company to tackle. Davis decided to enlist the help of several other vendors and organizations. The first time, I think it was just an email I got from some guys from Defense Intelligence, a security company, and uh, they were telling me that they had uncovered recently like this uh, botnet. And after doing some research, they found out that uh, some of the command and control servers seem to be in Spain. Not all of them, because there were some other, like in the US, for example. So they wanted to uh, collaborate with someone from Spain. And basically Panda, which was the company I was working for, it was like the most, the best known security company in Spain. This is Luis Corons, whom we met in the beginning of the episode. I'm a security evangelist for Gen, a security company that has a few brands that the audience may know, such as Norton, Avast, Avida, ABG. So pretty much in the antivirus side of the security world. In 2009, Luis was working for Panda Security. I was like the visible face for the company, as I usually talk about security and security conference, etc. So they they approached me and they told me, okay, uh, we're investigating this case and we like uh, to collaborate with you. And so that's what we did. Then is when uh, the Mariposa Working Group uh, was formed. The Mariposa Working Group consisted of Defense Intelligence, Panda Security, the Georgia Tech Information Security Center, and Spain's Guardia Civil, one of the country's two national police forces. The stealthy inquiry went on for several months, during which the investigators collected as much information as they could about the botnet, the networks it infected, and the domains of its various command and control servers. Then, with the reconnaissance phase of the operation over, it was time to move in for the kill. Working together uh, uh, to locate the servers, take control of them, and then rem- uh, sever the connection between the botnet uh, operators and and the botnet itself. That was the main goal. We were working towards that for a few months until uh, we thought we had 
everything we needed to to take down the botnet and sever this control. And then we had, okay, when we do that, when we do this, and we could have picked any day, but we did it on the 23rd of December, 2009. And that's that was not by chance. December 23rd was two days before Christmas. Everyone in the Western world is preparing for Christmas, right? So we decided to do it at in the 23rd at uh, 5 p.m. Spanish time. So it was in the morning in the U.S. So everyone was uh, awake and ready to work in the hope also that the uh, botnet operators were more thinking on holidays and Christmas gifts that uh, on taking care of the botnet. So the reaction time was not that good. And so, on the 23rd of December 2009, in a coordinated effort, the Mariposa Working Group took over the domains used by the botnet's CNC servers, wrestling control over the almost 13 million bots from Nightmare Days Group's hands. Mariposa was dead. In Spain, Canada and the United States, members of the Mariposa Working Group celebrated over glasses of wine. But they celebrated too early. Unbeknown to the working group's team members, NetCairo secretly reached out to an employee of the ISP who was assisting the working group with sinkholing the botnet and offered them a 500 euros bribe. The employee took the bribe and NetCairo could once again access butterfly.bigmoney.biz, thereby regaining control over a part of the botnet about a million PCs, according to one estimate. On January 24, 2009, about a month after the takedown, Chris Davis woke up in Canada to reports of a major DDoS attack on Defense Intelligence Network. Uh, what he did is took the botnet and uh, launched a denial of service attack against Defense Intelligence, which uh, affected some server in, in Canada that was hosting not just uh, defense intelligence resources, but also some governmental resources, etc. So it caused a bit of a nightmare in, in Canada for, for a few hours. It took a few more days for the working group to identify the renegade command and control server NetCairo was using, and this time they managed to shut it down for good. Now that the dust had settled, Luis Corons and his colleagues could examine the log files that detailed the communications between the Nightmare Days group members and Mariposa's command and control infrastructure. Unexpectedly, they struck gold. When we decided to do the takedown, he was the one that tried to regain control of it. So he realized that something was going wrong. He could not connect. So he started trying to connect to different uh, the different command and control servers, and he couldn't. And one of the times that he did that, he was like desperate trying to to gain control. One of the times uh, he made a fatal mistake. He forgot to use uh, VPN, and he connected from his home computer, from his home IP address. In his panicked attempts to regain control over his precious botnet, NetCairo made a fatal mistake that allowed the Spanish police to trace the connection back to his home. 
I didn't know that at the time. But then after investigating a few days later, then that's when uh, uh, we found about about this. And then we learned that uh, the guy, he was living like five kilometers from where I was working. <laughs> so it was really <laughs> close by. What was the chance, right? A week or so after the DDoS attack, the police raided Ned Kaiba's house and arrested him. The 31-years-old ringleader's real name was Florencio Caro Ruiz. During the raid, the investigators confiscated Ruiz's computer, which undoubtedly held incriminating evidence against the cybercrime gang. The problem was that Guardia's civil cyber division was so inexperienced in dealing with such investigations at the time that the police had no idea what to do next. Luis and his colleagues had the know-how to conduct the delicate forensic investigation for them, but under Spanish law, only the police was allowed to conduct such investigations, and any information uncovered by Panda security or defense intelligence could not be presented as evidence in the case. Luis then took a different route. What they did, they cloned the hard drive of the computer that they had taken, they took it to our lab. Uh, we did a forensic analysis of it, of all the content with them. We saw then what they had to do. And then we uncovered all the evidences that they were there. And then they, I think they spent there like a few days in, in our lab. And then they went back to their place and then they performed the same uh, procedure. You taught them how to actually do a forensic investigation. Yeah, yeah, because they, 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 they hadn't done it before, so and it needed to be, to be done properly. Using the information found on the desk, the police was able to arrest Ned Cairo's two accomplices, 25-years-old Juan José Rayos Belido, a.k.a. Ostiator, and 30-years-old Jonathan Pazos Riviera, nicknamed JPR. The wealth of information gleaned from the seized hard drive produced one more interesting jam. The Mariposa botnet, it turned out, earned its operators somewhere around 3,000 euros per month. This might sound like a lot of money, but if you've listened to a few episodes of Malicious Life, you can probably tell that this is an almost ridiculously small amount of money in cybercrime terms. Remember that we're talking about one of the largest botnets ever created that allowed its operators access to some of the wealthiest organizations on the planet and the credit card and banking information of untold millions of victims. A competent criminal could make literally millions of dollars with that kind of power. Which only goes to show how incompetent were NetCairo and his cronies. Their interrogation uncovered an almost comical lack of computer skills. They were basically script kiddies who only knew how to press the buttons that Matthias Korniak, the actual smart cow of the whole operation, created for them in the BF bot he sold them. None of them knew how to code. The gang's lack of skills, it turned out, cost them dearly. They missed plenty of opportunities to make quote-unquote real money of their fantastically successful botnet. For example, for a few hundred dollars extra, Matthias offered the gang a module for BFBot that would allow them to do what's known as a cookie-stuffing fraud. 
a hack that modifies the cookies on a victim's computer so that anytime the victim buys from an e-business that has an affiliate program, such as Amazon, for example, Nightmare Days would receive a commission on that sale. This module alone would have probably netted the gang millions of dollars in commissions. But since the gang members likely had no idea what cookie stuffing was, they refused Matya's offer. As one law enforcement officer was later quoted in an interview, quote, the most likely explanation is that they didn't even know what it was about. Otherwise, they could have multiplied the profit they were doing. End quote. The gang's lack of expertise can also explain Netkyra's amateurish mistake of connecting to his botnet without a VPN from his own apartment during the working group's takeover. The mistake that ultimately led to his and his friends' capture. Although the big fish they caught turned out to be somewhat of a goopy, this did not prevent the Spanish police from boasting about their achievement. At some point, uh, law enforcement contacted us and they told us, okay, we are going to do a big press conference because this is a big case for us and I, we want one of you to, to be there. So that was me. I was there in the, like, in the press conference with the Guardia Civil, like uh, announcing to the world that uh, this big bond had been taken down, that the people had been arrested. For Luis Corons, this should have been the end of the story. And in March, one day in March, I was in, in the office and I was waiting actually for a journalist. He was coming to interview me. And I was in the office and we had like a coffee machine and I, I didn't have any, any coins with me. So I said, I'm going downstairs, I'm going out of the office to get some coins so I can pay the journalist some coffee when he comes and interviews me. So I was going downstairs. This would be like, I don't know, nine in the morning or so. And then I met with two guys that are going upstairs. As the Spanish police never released any personally identifying information about the criminals they apprehended, Luis had no way of recognizing the two men standing in front of him. I just say hello and I follow my way. And then they say, hey, wait a moment. Uh, are you Luis Corrans? I said, yes, yes, I am. And then uh, they introduce themselves and they tell me their names. No clue. I didn't recognize those names. Uh, first time I hear these names, first time I see those faces, I didn't know anything, right? And then I said, okay, uh, nice meeting you. And then uh, they said, oh, wait, uh, I am Ned Cairo and this is Osteator. Those were the nicknames two of the guys were using. Uh, and I knew the nicknames. I th probably my face went white at that moment. I was like, oh my, oh my God, I'm dead. Luis assumed that Ned Cairo and Ostiator were in jail. But what he didn't know was that there weren't any laws in Spain back then against operating a botnet. And so the two cyber criminals were almost immediately let go with a puny fine of some 1,000 euros. Lucky for Louise, Ned Cairo and Ostiator weren't looking for revenge. In fact, they were looking for the exact opposite. 
And then they started talking to me. Oh, we just want to talk to you. So I said, okay, uh, let's go to, <laughs> to my place. Let's go to the lab. So we went to the lab and then um, uh, we went to a meeting room. I took one of my colleagues with me. Uh, I didn't want to be alone in a meeting room with them, <laughs> to be honest. I couldn't believe it. I mean, really, I was looking for hidden cameras to see if someone was pulling a joke on me because I, I couldn't believe that was happening, that they were the real guys. And then they started talking to me, like telling me that the situation had gone out of hand, that the botnet wasn't that big, that, but uh, they weren't making any money anymore because they didn't have the botnet. And that one of them had uh, had a job, but he quit the job because he was making enough money with the botnet. And now he didn't have a job and the botnet wasn't there, so he needed money. And I was like, okay, so what? And then they said, well, uh, so we are here because um, I think it will be great for you if you could hire us. <laughs> I, I, I was speechless. Uh, I didn't know how to react. For the sake of historical accuracy, Netcairo and Ostiator weren't the first cybercriminals who tried to leverage their ill-gained expertise to score a real job in the cybersecurity industry. In episode 22 of our podcast, for example, we told the story of Axel Gamby, the German hacker who broke into Valve's network and stole the source code for Half-Life 2 and then applied for a job in the company. And of course, there's Kevin Mitnick, who became a very successful security consultant after his time in jail. One can argue about whether hiring an ex-con is or isn't a smart move, but at the very least, Gamby, and certainly Mitnick, were extremely good at what they did. Netcairo and Ostiator, on the other hand, not so much. I was like, but uh, seriously, take into account that these guys, they didn't even know how to program, right? They, bought, they had bought it. The Mariposa wasn't developed by them. And I told them that, like, but you didn't even know how to program or anything. Yeah, and then uh, they started to tell me, yeah, but well, most of the ideas of and most of the modules that had been uh, incorporated into, into the bot during the development was because we had some ideas and then we gave those suggestions and then it, they were implemented. And I was, yeah, okay, uh, whatever. But I didn't dare to tell them no to their faces because I, I was a bit afraid of the reaction, right? So I said, okay, uh, I don't have the final word here. I can talk to the management of the company and see, see, see what's the feedback. But you have to take into account that, I mean, like uh, being a criminal and having like managed a botnet and stealing money, and, I mean, that, that's not a good presentation card, right? Like, and then they look at me like, oh, but nobody knows. And I say, what do you mean nobody knows? Yeah, well, I mean, people don't know who we are, right? Yeah, well, but I do. Yeah, but I mean, no one else knows. So you can hire us and no one will learn that we are. Yeah, but I do know. And I, if I am the one hiring people here, right? So I have some standards and no, I mean, 
that won't work for me. But still, as I say, I don't have the final words. So I will take a look at, into it, and then I, I will let you know. Ned Cairo and Ostiator left the office. I, I thought I was clear in the sense that I, I didn't say no, a final no, but that uh, I didn't think that was going to work. So I, I forgot about that. But a few days later, Ned Cairo reached out to Louise again, this time over the phone. And then he says, well, do you know, uh, I've been talking to my other friend and as we haven't heard back from you, we were wondering if there, when are you going to answer us to see if what kind of position we could get. I couldn't believe it. So I, but I, I asked him to come back to the office. So uh, he came a few days later, and then I I talked to him, and then that there is there was no way we will ever hire them. Then he became a bit aggressive, uh, verbally, not, not not physically, and he he, he really got uh, annoyed, uh, pissed off, and he started, oh, you are making a big mistake and I know things I've been doing some research on on your software from Panda and I have found like um, some security holes in it and I'm going to expose them if you don't hire me amazingly Ned Cairo was trying to blackmail Louise and Panda security into giving him a job a few days later I think it was like the next day or two days later or so a new a video in YouTube was published showing a computer and how he was bypassing uh, the antivirus. That would have been Panda's cloud-based antivirus. So what he did there, so we can understand the skills of this guy, so he took uh, some Trojan and put it in the computer and of course the antivirus was uh, detecting it and removing it. So then he disconnects the computer from the internet. So the cloud antivirus wasn't connecting to, <laughs> to the cloud. And then he saw how if you do that, you could copy with a USB, you could copy the, the Trojan into the computer. And that was it. That was the security hole. <laughs> That's <It> the hack. <laughs> Disconnect yeah. from the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. The video uh, is still on YouTube, by the way. I found it. Oh, <laughs> it's still on YouTube. <laughs> not, not a lot of views. Yeah. The audience probably understood that it's not a very a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Realizing that his less-than-stellar hacking skills failed to intimidate Panda, Ned Cairo tried a different method. He created a copycat Twitter account of mine. My Twitter account is Luis underscore Corons, and he created the same one, but instead of an L, it was a, a one. And then he started following all the people that was following me in order to get some follows back. And then uh, whoever had created that account started to, to publish uh, uh, clips of a gay porn video. <laughs> It's kind of childish, you know, like, oh, look. <laughs> but Ned Cairo's harassment attempt was so obvious that Louise's followers immediately realized what was happening and reported the copycat account to Twitter, which promptly shut it down, even before Louise himself was aware of its existence. 
empty-handed and probably very frustrated, Ned Cairo and his gang slipped into obscurity and were never heard from again. For a few years, Matias Skorniak, the Slovenian programmer who ran the dark code black market, enjoyed a tremendous success with his BF bot. Chris Davis's team tracked almost 700 website domains that were being used to control instances of Matias's BF bot, suggesting that he sold hundreds of copies of his bot kit. But it seems that selling BF bot to the Nightmare Days script kiddies was a mistake that cost him dearly, because the information gained from their investigation allowed the Slovenian police to uncover Matias's true identity, and he was arrested in Slovenia in 2010. He was sentenced to four years and ten months in jail, and all his crime proceeds were seized. Apparently, Matias learned his lesson and decided to change his ways for the good. He rebranded himself as a cryptocurrency expert and became the CDO of a crypto marketplace called NiceHash, which was owned by his father. But running away from your past isn't easy, and in Matias' case, impossible. In 2017, NiceHash was hacked and approximately $52 million worth of Bitcoin were stolen from its coffers. This prompted NiceHash's clients to probe a bit deeper into the CDO's murky past, which he unsuccessfully tried to hide, and naturally all suspicions were directed at him. Matias lamented his misfortune in an interview to a Slovenian publication. Quote, I barely picked up and I'm back on the floor. I am not a man who wants to harm anyone. What happened in the previous times could be attributed to my naivete. At the age of 22, I was not aware of the consequences that my actions might have." End quote. It was later discovered that it was probably North Korea who hacked NiceHash, but if Matias hoped that this revelation would help him get back to his feet, these hopes were quickly dashed when he was arrested in Germany in 2019. The US, it turned out, issued an international arrest warrant for him and three other members of the Darkhold Cybercrime Forum, including Mariposa's Ned Cairo. The trial against them is still ongoing. It seems that a butterfly can take down a cow, even a smart one. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Okay, New Yorkers, open your calendars. We've got a date and a place for our New York listeners meetup. March 13th, 2024. That's roughly two months from now at 7 p.m. in the evening. The location is Amplify's Brooklyn offices in the Dumbo neighborhood at 55 Washington Street. It turns out that Amplify's InfoSec team are all big fans of the podcast, and Aaron Harnley, Amplify's CDO, reached out to me last week and volunteered their newly remodeled office space. Aaron and the team, you're amazing. Thank you very, very much. I'd like to return the favor by telling you a bit about Amplify. 
Amplify is a leading education technology company developing next-generation programs that inspire teachers and students to do their best work. Amplify's InfoSec team safeguards data for millions of students in all 50 U.S. states and around the world. And they're hiring at amplify.com jobs. So if you're looking for your next adventure, go check them out. Again, March 13th, 7 p.m., Amplify's offices at 55 Washington Street in Dumbo, Brooklyn. I'll post this information as a sticky tweet on my Twitter account. My plan is to give a kind of a behind-the-scenes talk in the meetup about how Nate and I write the stories we tell you here on the show, the storytelling elements we're using, and how you can use them as well for your professional presentations or if you're writing a technical blog post, for example. March 13th. See you there. And here's another cool thing that happened to me last week. In our previous episode, if you recall, we've told the story of the $10.7 million Citibank hack, supposedly carried out by Vladimir Levin, but in reality, all the heavy lifting of the hack was done by a group of hackers, one of which was called Arkanoid. And what do you know? Last week, I've got a message from Arkanoid, who apparently is a listener of Malicious Life. Here's what he had to say about the episode you've heard. Quote, Man, I'm truly impressed. A masterpiece of journalists' work. You collected all the pieces other considered irrelevant and filtered out all the bullshit. Thank you, Arkanoid. Uh, Nate did the research and writing in this case. Just one small mistake. MRDC is not a software. It is a facility. Citicorp's mid-range data center at Wall Street 111, if my memory serves me right. Also, Bakazoid Persona was invented by a journalist, Konstantin Chernozatonsky, who published a quote-unquote interview with me in the early 90s, allowing himself many liberties over the facts. So I'm even glad it did not include my more real identity, Arkanoid. I wish he was less creative. I was massively unhappy about the material at that time. P.S. One important nuance about the Moonlight Maze operation... That's another episode we've released a few weeks ago, if you recall. Nowadays, U.S. government tries to create a plausible story about Uber hackers from the GRU, the world's first APT that hacked federal systems. It was nothing like that. As usual, it was a story of gross negligence. The truth is, the U.S. government did not manage their IT much better than Citibank at that time, so literally everyone was there. I know a guy who created .mil mailboxes for himself for fun. So the majority of hackers were just like me, fucking around for curiosity's sake. And after a while, someone talked to a quote-unquote friend in Russian intelligence, and they took over. But it was not an APT. The GRU just got a free ride. The exploit collections were passed around by hundreds of script kiddies. I did not participate in any of those, but... Everyone knew. End quote. Arkanoid, thank you very, very much for all the additional information and error corrections. That's the sort of information you just can't find in any sort of research. So that's amazing. As for Moonlight Maze, as I stated in the episode itself, it was quite apparent that the earliest hacks were done by script kiddies and not professional hackers, although it's interesting to learn that the GRU only took over the operation after the fact. So, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you, Arkanoid. 
Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written by me, edited by Nate Nilsson, with sound design this time by Shelley Noy. Not Shelley Guetta, who caught the COVID bug and hopefully spent most of the week in bed drinking tea. Our website is malicious.life, where you can find all of our past episodes with full transcripts, and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife or me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. CK Music, Music, Music.